Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. As psychedelic-assisted therapy is poised to go mainstream, most of the focus and opportunity is aimed at doctors, therapists, and others who will be legally approved to offer this kind of support through a medical model, which raises some pretty big concerns about the impact of the medicalization of psychedelics on the underground. Those brave and skilled coaches, guides, practitioners, and others who've been quietly offering psychedelic support in the gray market in some cases for decades. In this episode, we're going to explore some interesting points on this topic, including how the changing laws can create more opportunity and more potential liability for people offering psychedelic support outside of the emerging medical model. We're also going to look at where underground practitioners are most at risk regarding legal liability and what they can do to minimize this. An emerging form of insurance that could be extremely beneficial to underground practitioners and their clients and how people in the underground can get access to numerous free resources to help them better serve their current clients and expand their practice going forward. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest who is a major advocate for underground practitioners and is innovating some invaluable solutions for coaches and guides operating outside the legal or emerging medical model. Welcome to this episode of the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's session is How the Legalization of Psychedelic Therapy Will Impact Underground Practitioners, Guides, and Others Already Doing This Work. Joining me today is someone who's already made a huge contribution to the psychedelic space, Aviva Robinovich. Aviva has been working in the psychedelic world for over 15 years, helping organizations refine and reach their missions. As a lifelong community builder, she has established vibrant psychedelic communities that bring businesses, advocates, practitioners, and dreamers together to foster more compassionate and conscious ways of living, working, and being. From 2020 to 2022, she acted as head of operations at Third Wave, a psychedelics education and coaching company. And her new venture, The Guides Collective, is a private online community that brings together psychedelic guides and facilitators to co-elevate, grow their practices, and nurture their ability to be of service. And if you've ever heard that saying, your reputation precedes you, I would say that definitely applies to Aviva because she's one of those people that you hear about long before you ever meet her. That was certainly my experience. We got connected last year at the Catalyst Conference, and I definitely heard about you long before that. And anytime your name comes up, Aviva, it's always followed by superlatives like she's amazing. She's fantastic. You have to meet her. 
And having known you now for a little while, I can say that is absolutely true. I am so thrilled to count you as a friend in the psychedelic space and really thrilled to have you here as a guest. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sonia. I'm trying not to let all of those kind words go to my head. The last thing we need is greater ego inflation. In the <laughs> oh, thank you. In some cases, it's very well-deserved. And you have a great origin story. So could we start there? Would you share a little bit about your professional career and how you came to be doing work in the psychedelic space? Absolutely. So if we go back all the way, I actually started my career in the advertising industry. It was a job I found by accident by wandering into an advertising agency with a friend of mine who was on a casting call. And back in the day, there was no internet. And there was a little card on the front desk that said, help wanted. And I had a BA in nothing and applied to work there and was accepted. So I started in the advertising industry. I've always been a writer, so that allowed me to lean into those skills, but it was never going to be something that I was going to do forever, mostly because my mother was driving me crazy about actually having a real profession, which necessarily had to be something like a doctor, lawyer, dentist, or accountant. So I ended up applying to law school under her pressure and graduated with an LLB, worked in, at the time, Canada's largest law firm during my articles, and then was not asked back to join the firm. One of their prescient recognitions, because I clearly was not cut out to be working inside that environment. So I spent a little bit wandering around, deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up, landed at an event coordination company where they were organizing big events for continuing education. And I helped organize those. It was run by a husband and wife team. They were in the middle of a knockdown, drag him out divorce. It was a tiny firm. It was truly a toxic working environment. And they were making money hand over fist. And I thought, man, if you can run a company like this and still make money, you can run any kind of company. So I quit. I quit and I started my own business, which is a marketing communications company where I decided to do copywriting. So marketing communications for large organizations. And that was sort of the genesis of my real world career. Wow. Interesting background in terms of skill sets, event coordination, legal experience, communications experience. No doubt all of that is serving you in your current capacity. And how is it that you got involved in psychedelics? Would you mind sharing a bit more about that experience? Yeah, I was wandering through life, not being happy like most human beings. And I had a dear friend who seemed to be always happy. And she approached me and asked if I was interested in joining a women's group that she was part of that I didn't know a lot about, but that she disclosed to me actually worked with MDMA in community. It was a conscious community of women and they just got together a few times a year and just literally came up with themes to support each other and encourage everybody to reach their fullest potential. So I was invited to join that. I was petrified. I grew up during the war on drugs. I truly believed that exposure to psychedelics would melt your brain and cause you to jump off a building and all those things they taught us. But I trusted her. 
So I got into this group and it was life altering. Not only did I form the kind of intimate bonded relationships that really lead to transformation, but it allowed me to start disconnecting from my own noisy brain and back out a little bit to find the watcher and start seeing where my negative patterns were recurring. So it was life altering. It really changed the course of how I work with people, how I navigate my work, how I communicate, how I self-care. So that was my introduction into the world of psychedelics, at least on a personal level. And then there was a crossover between personal and professional after I had been in the psychedelic space for a period of time and I was making a lot of personal changes. I was able to look at the work I was doing in the real world and say, I don't like the legacy I'm leaving. I kind of felt like my whole epitaph would be something like she helped billion dollar corporations make more money. And it wasn't what I wanted to leave in terms of what my children would think, what the world would remember me for. So I decided that it would be really damn cool to get into the psychedelic industry. <laughs> At the time, which was in 2019, there were not a lot of jobs available. Not like now, where there's like tons of job boards and stuff for people in the space. But back then, if you weren't a clinician or a neuroscientist, there were very few options. But there were a handful of companies out there that were working in what I call the cultural space as opposed to the clinical space. And one of those was Third Wave. At the time, it was predominantly an education and resources company that would teach people how to engage in the intentional and responsible use of psychedelics. And I remember in 2019, when I was writing my goals for the year of 2020, I wrote down, I would like to work for Third Wave. And two months later, there was an ad where they were looking for somebody to run their content division. And I applied and I got the job. Brilliant. And I think most people are familiar with Third Wave, but if you're not, it's got all kinds of articles and very helpful information related to psychedelics. They've developed great support for therapists or coaches that want to get into this work. And again, your reputation precedes you because I've heard from so many people just what a contribution you made to the development of Third Wave. So I'm curious, what are you most proud of in terms of all the work that you did there? A lot, actually, on two sides. So on the first side, on the professional side, working at that company, we hit an awesome stride right around the time that I started. The owner, Paul Austin, he had started hiring people to kind of bolster the executive team right around the time that I joined. So we ended up with just a team of people who had a real vision for the growth of the company, something that Paul hadn't actively pursued previously. And it just was like a confluence of perfect events for us to get together and start envisioning what the next phase of the company would look like. We ended up launching a coaching certification program. I was instrumental in the development of that, at least on the back end. There was a lot of work that went into it. I mean, it was a huge team effort, but I made a big influence in terms of building out that program in its initial iteration. And that was really damn cool. It was like really awesome to be one of the first companies out there that started offering coaching certification, like a program that allowed life coaches and executive coaches to integrate psychedelics into their practices. 
from a non-clinical perspective. There weren't a lot of offerings at the time that were doing that. Most of the training focused on doctors, nurse practitioners, psychologists, psychoanalysts, that kind of thing. So this was like a real contribution to it. We closed a gap, which was exciting. I also was responsible for the development of the company's mushroom grow kit and course. So that was the full development of the entire product from conception through rollout. It ended up being and still remains like a flagship product for the company. So from the time I joined to the time I left, which was just under two years, I believe, we quadrupled revenues. It was a time of real growth that I believe the company has continued. So it was an exciting time to be part of the company for sure. I've heard you referred to as Mama Aviva for your loving, nurturing nature and pair that with some kick-ass skills and the contribution you made to really helping to hone the team there at Third Wave. I know it's been significant, so acknowledge you for that too. And that does take me to my next question. As psychedelic therapy goes mainstream, obviously a lot of the focus and opportunity for people to do this work, it will be focused on doctors, therapists, and those who've been legally approved. And that does open up a lot of concern about the impact on underground practitioners. And I know you and I have been around the space for a long time and know several people who've been bravely offering psychedelic therapy underground for some time. Some of them are licensed therapists who do this at their peril and others are extremely educated and skilled practitioners or guides. And I believe that concern has led you to found a really interesting group. Would you tell the audience a little bit about the Guides Collective and what that's all about? This was interesting because for me, a lot of the impetus behind it came from my work with Third Wave. We were graduating people out of the coaching certification program to work as guides and facilitators, and many of them were hesitant not just because of the legal repercussions associated with potentially working in an unregulated and gray market area, but also just in terms of the support that they had to go forward and run their practices. A lot of people who get into support work, like a guide, they're doing it to help people. They're doing it because they want to be of service. And very often they don't have the business grounding to run it as a business. And you kind of need both, especially in this space where we're dealing with an environment where protocols and intake and client management are absolutely critical and also legal protection, right? In terms of even the way you set up your business. And it became clear to me that there was a lack in the market for access to those kind of resources to support guides and facilitators who are interested in actually building the foundation of their businesses. So Guides Collective is about closing that gap. I'm putting together a load of free resources available to guides and facilitators that will allow them to run their businesses more effectively. Everything from client intake forms and questionnaires and protocols to one of what is shaping up to be one of the most comprehensive free list of contraindications. We've got a directory of lawyers in the psychedelic industry coming out where people will be able to find access both to lawyers in the civil and criminal spaces. I've got a load of forms and other things that, you know, will be made available. And I'm also working with the insurance companies to try to negotiate 
insurance for psychedelic guides and facilitators, both malpractice insurance, so for their for their own practices, and claims insurance for their clients to potentially be able to submit claims to get payment back for the services that they're taking. That's fascinating. So let's talk about that. What kind of liability, I guess, do you see these guides facing? Obviously, previous to this, people knew that they were taking somewhat of a personal risk by offering this. And I know that most people believed in the work so much that they were willing to do so. And they deserve so much credit and acknowledgement for all the work they've done and the contributions they made to the space. I know you share that belief and that acknowledgement with me. But certainly now going forward, I think there's a lot of concern and I guess confusion about what it would mean to offer these services when things are perhaps more legalized or at least medicalized. So what's your take on that? What kind of liability? do practitioners face as this goes mainstream? There is a lot of confusion, Sonia, you're right. I speak to guides on a weekly basis or people who want to be guides. And I definitely hear, particularly from people who are new to the space, potential lack of realization that they're still rolling into an industry that is not legal. So for guides that actually want to work with clients with medicine, I mean, they could face criminal prosecution. They could face civil search and asset forfeiture. They can face jail time. These are serious repercussions that I'm not sure everybody truly understands because there's a general feeling in the industry that as things are becoming more mainstream and as we know that law enforcement has become less rigorous in terms of enforcing the laws around this, there's this general feeling that, oh, we're going to be okay. And that may be predominantly true, but it is by no means a guarantee. Your stories on a pretty regular basis of people who have been convicted or arrested or tried for working in this space. And I think it's something that guides and facilitators should be well aware of before committing mm-hmm. this path. Because right. there are ways to do this without contravening the current legal landscape. And that's a really good point because so much of the work that's being done now has really focused on decriminalization. But that is not legalization. And even though it might reduce the risk for people doing this work privately, like you said, there is still the potential for a prosecution to take place. So in terms of insurance, then what can be done to help protect people that still want to continue to do this work? Is there any kind of coverage or anything that you know of that could be useful? So as of right now, there is insurance coverage for people who are working with clinical designations. If you're a therapist, if you're running a ketamine clinic, if you're a neuroscientist, if you're working with clinical trials, if you're in the research space, yeah, chances are you're insured. That said, there are things inside even these legal policies that not everybody is aware of. So things like if I'm running a ketamine clinic, perfectly legally, and I've got insurance on my clinic, there are often riders inside insurance policies that say things like, if more of 20% of your practice works in ketamine, you are no longer insured. Or say things like, if you are using off-brand ketamine, you're no longer insured. And people don't realize this. They think that their insurance coverage is actually a full coverage, whereas obviously the insurance companies are protecting themselves. So you need to be really conscious, even if you are qualified for insurance, on what the terms of the insurance policies say. 
And then in terms of people who are not in the clinical space that are working as guides, there is some insurance right now for people who are working, again, in clinical spaces without clinical designations, as long as they have certain certifications or accreditations or licenses. So for instance, MAPS is frantically trying to certify a whole load of new facilitators. According to Rick Doblin, we're going to need another 100,000 guides by 2031 just to meet current demand. So obviously, MAPS is not the only program available. There's a whole load of them. But there are a few that right now the insurance companies kind of recognize or are starting to recognize. And this is for guys that are working in a clinical setting and are in effect the second person in the room. Part of a standard protocol of psychedelic therapy is that there is more than one person facilitating the experience. One of them is typically an MD or a nurse practitioner or a therapist, but a second one does not need the medical designation. Those are the people that are most likely to qualify for insurance initially. What I'm looking for is to expand the definition of insurance way beyond that to people who are also working in non-clinical spaces. Fascinating. So aside from insurance, then what are some other steps that people could take to protect themselves or reduce liability? The first obvious one is just to work in legal spaces. First of all, there are countries where psychedelics are not illegal. And you hear of guys and facilitators, you know, moving out or working in retreat settings in Costa Rica and Peru and Jamaica, places where it's perfectly legal. So depending on your risk tolerance, that's certainly something that you can do without running afoul of the laws. A second thing is to avoid actively working with the medicines. So as a psychedelic facilitator or guide, there's absolutely nothing stopping you from helping people to prepare for a psychedelic trip, to integrate a psychedelic trip. You're just not allowed to sit with somebody, procure medicine, provide them with the substances, anything like that. So if all you're doing is preparation and integration, you're perfectly fine. Also, there are states, like you mentioned earlier, Sonia, that are decriminalized. So mm -hmm. there are places where you can now work with the medicine under the aegis of state-sanctioned regulations. That's happening in Oregon predominantly, auto as well. But, but there's limitations in terms of what you can do. Like right now, I believe in Oregon, you need to have a certain type of training and work in certain type of service centers, right? The laws still haven't been completely clarified, but they're getting there. And because we are at, a, are at an age of decriminalization, the odds of prosecution, if you're working in this space at this point, go down drastically. You could potentially face civil penalties. I wouldn't recommend that anybody grow mushrooms, right? But you can definitely work in a space without getting involved directly with the medicine. And I think with Oregon coming online this year, all eyes will be watching to see how that rolls out. I know there's been an enormous amount of thought and preparation that's gone into setting up that system. And no doubt it'll be a real model for the rest of the country. And I know it's anybody's guess, but in the next three to five years, do you have any sense of how things may become easier for practitioners or guides wanting to do this work? 
I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, right? There's no way to really predict what will happen. We're definitely seeing momentum towards decriminalization, not only in different states, but across the world. I mean, Vancouver and Canada is now a city that has decriminalized. We're seeing legalization in some parts. I mean, Portugal has been legal pretty much forever, right? So there's definitely places where we're seeing the momentum. And anybody who's reading the media is obviously keeping up with the change tides of where the industry is going. This will obviously speak to the need for greater facilitation and guidance into the future. I think this is particularly true if we're looking at the spaces that have already been legalized. So like I said, if you look at the maps where they're talking about needing up to 100,000 additional facilitators, that's for therapy that has already been approved and is online. It's for ketamine-assisted therapy. It's for the MDMA-assisted therapy that we anticipate will pick up steam once MAPS completes its final FDA trials. It's for psilocybin therapy, which once more has already come out in the quasi-legal space in certain jurisdictions for certain applications or indications. So as this gains steam, we're definitely going to have greater need for people who are working in this space. I'd be very surprised if it was derailed, but who the hell knows, right? We don't know anything about the political mood, and we saw how fast things shut down in the 70s. There's nothing to say that it couldn't happen again if there is misbehavior, if there's ethical obstacles. I think that it is a time that we all need to be really conscious of what we're bringing to the community and how we hope to see the industry unfold. Yeah, I think the general consensus is cautious optimism at this point. But I really appreciate your point there about the growing need. And it seems to me as I've talked to people and they're now learning about this work, they are really curious about it. And those that may not want to go the sort of traditional therapy route, but want to get involved, you know, could certainly find space, I think, in some of the formats that are emerging. And that's really encouraging. So we'll have to see how that develops over the next few years. It's interesting, though, to that point, right? At my last count, there were 77 zero training programs now available for people either with or without designations to figure out how to integrate psychedelics into some form of practice, whether that's as a clinician or a therapist or an analyst or a doctor or a regular human being who just wants to act as a sitter or whatever the case might be. But there are no standardization or accreditation around this. And as a result, this is what's making it harder for the insurance companies to assess who is effectively able to operate in this space and who they would be willing to cover. Mm-hmm. Heard of a standardization initiative that is apparently underway in the U.S. I've been trying to speak to them, and from what I can tell, it's predominantly stalled. I actually am in the process of working with a team to vet the existing training programs out there under a fairly complex analytical rubric that will allow us to figure out which of these would be viable if you're looking for insurance. We're still in the nascent stages of this analysis, but you know we've worked out all of our structural frameworks and now we just need to move forward on the actual assessment. So we're hoping to build that in tandem with whatever standardization initiative is underway and open to sharing whatever our output is as well as that initiative gains traction. Fascinating. That'll be really interesting to see in the coming years and it's certainly much needed at this point too. 
So I'd like to ask you about another topic, something we've talked about before and something I know you're very passionate about, and that is the multi-generational use of psychedelics, specifically how couples might use psychedelic substances as part of couples therapy to either work on issues in their relationship or strengthen their relationship. And there's also opportunities to do that kind of work with more of your extended family, your parents, or in some cases, even your children. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and why you think this is destined to become more of a trend. So psychedelics have been used for a really long time in couples therapy. This isn't a new concept. In fact, MDMA, when it was first established, although it was established for medical use, was co-opted by a small therapeutic society who started using it with their patients or clients because they realized that people were communicating more empathically and were able to actually drop a lot of the layers of their own interpretation when they were on the substance and gain greater clarity so that they can begin the process of healing their past wounds, traumas, issues, it has obvious applications in a couple's setting because it's a heart opener. So there are currently people who work with MDMA for couples therapy, especially when couples are having issues, because it allows you to be more empathetic, to communicate without a layer of judgment, to be more honest without fear of how you're going to be perceived. And so it softens the way that you interrelate. And especially if you're guided in a therapeutic space or by a guide to be able to see what those patterns are, it's a really powerful healing modality. To me, the next logical step from that is to create a multi-generational option for using substances like MDMA, both with your kids and with your parents. And it's interesting because people talk about it as an emerging trend, but every time I say something about this out loud, there's somebody in the crowd who tells me that they have already or already plan to engage in some kind of psychedelic ceremony with their kids or their parents. So this is a trend that I think is already happening. It's just not well documented. And I think one of the concerns is this obviously isn't right for everybody. One of the challenges of using psychedelics is that when it works well for you, you start becoming an evangelist. People who use psychedelics generally come out of their experiences feeling that they've been so altered that everybody else and their brother should also use this because they'll be equally as altered. It's not true, right? This is not the modality for everybody in the same way that there's no modality that's right for everybody. So the danger becomes adding your own layer into it and assuming that just because you had a positive experience, the people you love will have a positive experience. That's simply not true. There are a lot of issues associated with potentially using psychedelics intergenerationally, and they could cause more harm than good if it's not approached with intention and preparation. Yes, for sure. I'm just curious, have you had any personal experience there that you want to share? It's so interesting because when I originally joined that women's community I was telling you about, it was actually founded by a mother-daughter team. This was actually a story of a daughter who introduced her mother to psychedelics, and the mother was so taken by the substance that she ended up putting together her own group of women, her own peers, to start having these experiences. And that's how it grew from there. 
So currently in that group, there are multiple generations of people who actually trip with their parents and or children. I've also had those experiences in my own family. I've got three kids. We have opportunities to connect with each other in ceremony. It is incredibly beautiful. It's very supportive, I guess, to be able to be in ceremony with your own children and have them see you for all that you are. The type of acceptance that creates in a family, the ability to get rid of layers, the ability to clear stuff that has come up over the years, because there's always stuff that comes up over the years, to talk about things in a way that you're not judging it, that you're just revisiting it and hopefully healing it. There is nothing like that. I don't think, you know, a conversation over turkey dinner is going to do it in the same way as sitting in ceremony for a full day with people that you love. Right. Wow. Beautiful. And we should mention here, Aviva's kids are on the elder side. They're not toddlers, obviously, or young children. There's certainly uses in South America, ayahuasca, in some of those ceremonial spaces, children were invited in and it was part of the community experience. And I really appreciate what you're saying. I can only imagine how profound it must be to have a family doing that work together and being able to share that space and to be that transparent and honest and loving and to talk through any issues that might be somewhat troublesome in the light of day, but maybe not so much in a space like that. And I do know of a therapist who was doing work like that and worked with a family who had gone through an enormous amount of grief. One of the children had committed suicide and the impact on the family was enormous. And it just never was getting resolved through regular therapy or any other means. And they were able to do MDMA therapy together as a family. And she said it was one of the most moving things she'd ever seen. And it was incredibly useful for that particular group. So there's certainly a lot of potential there. But I really appreciate what you say too. It's not necessarily for everybody. And just because one family member has a great experience doesn't mean that it's appropriate for the rest of the family. So how do you know how to broach that, Aviva, if you want to perhaps have a conversation with your spouse or partner, or maybe a member of your family? Do you have any tips or thoughts on how someone might approach that to see if it could be appropriate and potentially test the waters maybe before you go much further? I think this is really important. The story you just told is actually one of the markers that people should be looking for, right? A lot of people want to engage in ceremony because they're dealing with an endemic issue that can't find resolution in and of itself. And they feel that if they're going to be in a more heart open space in a psychedelic ceremony, it'll give them an opportunity to have a conversation that potentially can't be had without that alteration. However, that's not always true. So psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers. If somebody is angry and takes psychedelics angry, they might just get angrier. So it's not necessarily a key to opening people's hearts. The family that did it the way you were explaining, Sonia, with a therapist, that's one of the things to consider is to work with a guide, facilitator, therapist, especially if you're dealing with true issue that might fall under the ages of classic psychological or psychiatric challenges, because having that kind of guidance, even just to create the proper set and setting, set intentions, figure out what proper behavior is, what is allowed, what's not allowed, what are the boundaries inside of the relationship we're going to have. 
those things should be discussed and negotiated in advance. Same in terms of the conversations around, are you prepared to see your children altered? Are your children prepared to see you altered? Is this something that everybody has sufficient emotional maturity to be able to navigate the space? If you're talking about doing this with your kids, right? How old are your kids? Do they have substance abuse issues? Are they well-adjusted adults? Are they working in jobs where potential exposure to psychedelics could cause them career-related issues? Like These are all issues that you need to consider before you ever broach the topic. Have they had their own experiences with psychedelics? If so, right, it becomes a lot easier conversation than asking your children who have never been exposed to this if they want to play in these waters with you. Are they open-minded or judgmental? Are they going to have an issue with you having worked in this space? Same things goes with parents too, right? I mean, and there's other issues in terms of parents. Are your parents hippies? Did they grow up in the 50s or the 60s and they're open to experimentation? Or are they really rigid? Are they shut down? Do they have medical issues? Do they have heart-related issues? Could this cause harm? Are they on medications that would be contraindicated for the use of psychedelics. All of these are the kind of questions that need to be asked in advance before you start walking these waters. It sounds cool in theory, but in practice, you also need to ask yourself, what happens the day after? It's the same like, you know, jumping into any kind of new experience. It sounds exciting at the time, but you have to continue in relationship with these people after the euphoria has worn off. Do you have a way that you're going to integrate this into your regular daily life so it doesn't become an uncomfortable comfortable moment but either damages relationships or that you blip over and forget because you weren't comfortable with it. Sounds like very important points to consider for sure. And I know the idea is exciting of doing it with a partner or a spouse or a family member, someone that you love. I think those of us that have had really positive experiences, of course, just naturally want to share it. But there are lots of things to consider for sure. And I can imagine for some people, if they have a relationship that's quite troubled or strained, there would be great desire to do this work with someone like that. And yet that could also be opening up a can of worms. Do you have any thoughts on what people could do to potentially reduce the harm or the risk of that kind of situation? Or do you know someone that's been successful in using this work with someone in which the relationship was pretty troubled? So I honestly believe that facilitated experiences are going to reduce the risk, right? You're already dealing with hopefully a practitioner who has experience working with fraught situations. If you bring somebody like that in to help facilitate the experience or at the very least help integrate it subsequently, I think that would make a huge difference. You also need to ask about your own motivations, right? So I remember a story of a friend who told me that he was really eager to have a family experience with his brother and father because the brother and father were estranged. He was still speaking to both his brother and his father, but the two of them weren't speaking. And he thought, if I just bring the three of us together, we can potentially mend that rift. And it took him a while of self-introspection to kind of say, you know what? This isn't my monkey. It's not my job to fix this you know, break in the relationship. So you've got to ask yourself what your motivations are too. And not everything broken can or should be fixed, right? There's also that element of we walk our paths, we navigate our paths in this life for a reason. And sometimes pain or disharmony are teachers in and of themselves and trying to sweep them away through ceremony or any other 
type of experience where we pretend that it's gotten better, where really we haven't allowed ourselves to process it fully, that's not doing anybody justice. This is how we grow. Hurt lets us grow. Sometimes just because you're hurting doesn't mean it needs a solution. Yes. And I think too, there can be somewhat of a misbelief that one psychedelic experience can be a cure-all for a situation like that. And for those of us that have been around this space for a long time, we know that this is often just the beginning of work to be done. So what I hear also in what you're sharing is just the importance, you know, if people want to go down this path and do healing with family members or partners, that they're really prepared to make a commitment to doing this for the long term, that this just might be the beginning of a lot of work yet to be done. And it isn't necessarily a one opportunity to kind of fix everything and walk away. So really appreciate what you're saying there. So you've done incredibly well in companies, businesses, spaces that are often dominated by men. And you've certainly held your own, Aviva. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the roles of women in the psychedelic space. I've seen you contribute so much to this space. And, you know, I I don't always see that gender is necessarily a part of that. But what's your take on the roles of women in psychedelics, especially as things go mainstream and especially perhaps for practitioners and guides? How do you see them contributing even more in the years to come? First off, women have long been wisdom keepers, right? They were considered the holders of the tradition in the psychedelic space. So I would like to see that continuously remembered and honored because there is definitely a layer that women bring that is desperately needed in a world where we've become so fractious and divisive and aggressive. And I'm not saying that women can't fall into those traps and certainly do, but I also believe that there is a tendency among women to collaborate and heal as opposed to lean into artificial differences. So I would like to see that recognized, even just going back to the indigenous communities that truly were the pioneers in this space and building on that. I mean, they were working with these substances well before we ever had a term psychedelic guide or psychedelic facilitator. So all we're really doing is building on their legacy and recognizing the female influence there and fanning that flame, I believe can only inure to the benefit of an industry that is already in danger of potentially falling into the standard habits that we see in nascent industries. So like any emergent industry, right, we saw it in the tech space and we're seeing it here. There's always going to be a handful of what we can call the finance bros who are coming in and turning the space into an opportunity to make money, to you know run a public company, to raise capital, to turn a quick profit, to exit quickly, to you know boost the valuations and move out. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that model, but I'm also not saying there's anything necessarily right with that model. We've definitely hit an age of our social awareness where I think we're watching a generation emerge that feels that a lot of the institutions that were created by my generation and the generations ahead of me are broken. It is rare that we get an opportunity to work in an industry that virtually hasn't existed before. 
And if we're getting this opportunity in the psychedelic space, it is incumbent upon us to decide what that industry is going to look like as we go into the future. Are we just going to repeat the mistakes of the past and create a culture where we value productivity over health and, you know, money over connection? I think it would be a lost opportunity. Mm. I think we have a chance to actually create a new paradigm for the way business operates. One that can contribute to society and can make money because there's nothing wrong with that, but can do so in a way where people are supported, where jobs don't take over lives, where we're all working towards a common good. And there's a part of me that just does not want to sound like, you know, a 1960s hippie, especially because I'm not. But I would like to believe that we do have the potential to create something different and beautiful. And I believe that women will need to be the leaders for that to happen. I love that. And I know you and I have talked about that in the past. It's so interesting to me that the psychedelics industry, for lack of a better word, is one of the few that's truly being birthed from the ground up, at least in terms of the modern version of it. It's not like medicine or law or business spaces that were already established by men and into which women entered. This new industry is being birthed at this moment. And the opportunity women have to inform and influence it is enormous and so important. So I really appreciate all you shared there. And it's a passion for both of us to support women, especially into finding their place in this space and really having as much influence as they can and to contribute their unique and innate abilities to the space. I think it's really important for us to do that. It just creates a better space for all involved. So thanks for saying that too. And you are certainly creating great things through your work. So thank you for all you've done to date. How can people find you if they want to find out more about the Guides Collective or just follow you and your work? Where can we send them? Thank you. So the website is guides collective, G-U-I-D-E-S collective.com. And there's lots going to be happening there. So I'm really excited when we do a final rollout and find me online on LinkedIn. That is the best place for me to be followed. Perfect. We'll make sure the links are next to the podcast episode here so you can easily find them. And I personally am very excited about what you're creating, the Guides Collective. Congratulations again. I know the insurance piece is a big deal and something that's still in the works, but could truly be a game changer for a lot of people in this space. So thank you for your leadership and appreciate you being here, Aviva. Thanks again. Thank you, Sonia, also for all the work that you're doing. So grateful. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time. Mm -hmm.